in the air. Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 99 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly, and we got stuff to talk about. We have uh, the Giants keep scoring runs, uh, sometimes a lot of runs. Would you say that they are capable of scoring a plethora of runs, Andy? They might score as many runs as Wayne Gretzky has points in his NHL career. (laughs) For number ninety nine, or Manny Ramirez drove in as a Dodger. I, I we don't want we no we don't want a Manny Ramirez Dodger reference on this podcast. But uh, those are those are the ninety nines that come to my mind. Obviously, yeah, no ninety nine and Manny Ramirez are honestly just just locked into my head. I like I don't mind Manny Ramirez on the Dodgers talk because he was on the Dodgers in two thousand ten. And that was when I was assuming the Dodgers were going to win three championships in five years. Uh, One, two, they actually didn't. They actually didn't. Um, So that was, I just remember thinking, oh gosh, they got Manny Ramirez. They're going to be so powerful forever. And then, you know what happened? Yeah. But then they went and got a player who's better, Mookie Betts. So, you know. Maybe 10 years from now, you'll be saying the same thing. Still incredibly mad at the Red Sox. Um, we are going to talk about trades for a little bit, though, because you, you, uh, we didn't talk about the trade deadline. And so I want to get your thoughts. We had uh, some pointy-headed nerd on, Eno Saris, uh, to talk about the trades, but he doesn't have the ins and outs of the Giants like like you. So what did you think about the, the train, trade deadline? Well, first of all, I, I don't think I would have requested a couple days off if I thought that anything was going to happen at the trade deadline, and, and, and anything can happen. But I really didn't think the Giants were going to do anything, and uh, the reason was was kind of well uh, telegraphed by Farhan Zaidi. You know, they they thought they had a really good bullpen surplus and didn't really feel that they would lose a lot uh, by moving the relievers that they did last year at the trade deadline, and so they you know went out and got a Jalen Davis and a Kaiwei Tang and a couple interesting players they could input in the system. Uh, this year, they didn't feel like they had that depth. And maybe they thought they set themselves up to have that depth by bringing in not just Kevin Gaussman, but, you know, Trevor Cahill and, and Drew Smiley and, and um, uh, you know, even having guys like uh, uh, that were in spring training that didn't make it out of camp, um, you know, a, a Karasidi or, or a Tyson Ross. Um, but they felt that they were going to give themselves enough starting pitching depth that they could move a Gossman or a Smiley. And, you know, that they had enough injuries that, that they really needed all of their depth. And uh, so they didn't feel like they could trade away a Gossman and 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 make up for that absence. Um, and, and, and really, it's pretty obvious that if they had traded Kevin Gossman, there's no way that they could face that clubhouse and say, we feel that we didn't take away from this team. So, um, you know, I think they're staying true to, to what, the marching orders are from from upper management, from ownership, which is we know you're rebuilding, but it, hey, if you if you got a chance, if this group is is in contention, you know we're not going to punt on a season. So um, you know I think they honored that as best they could, and 
it's just interesting to see what all the other trades happened and, and how it's going to impact their schedule moving forward. That that really is, is how the trade deadline ends up affecting them more than anything. It was a, a situation where if you looked at all the players who got traded for a bounty of prospects or what passes for a bounty of prospects in these prospect-hugging times, uh, they were relievers with years of control, at least one extra year of control. And in a perfect world, maybe if the Giants were plotting the scenario out and they had a, a little bit more control about what happened, someone like Trevor Gott would have emerged this year or someone like Sean Anderson or I, you know, any one of the younger relievers or the relievers under team control would have emerged and the Giants could have just shot them around and said, you want four years of Trevor Gott? We got four years of Trevor Gott, and then maybe they get a, a top 10 prospect from another system. That just didn't happen. So you've got Tony Watson, and how many start or how many appearances is he going to make for his new team at 10? You know, before the postseason, maybe 12. And then they get to the postseason. How many appearances is he get, gonna get in the postseason? Two, three, four. I mean, you know, it's a total crapshoot. So you're not gonna get a big prospect for Tony Watson, and, and that's where the Giants are at. But I don't know. You're right. It's looking forward. The teams that were decimated, you have the Diamondbacks and the Mariners, both teams that are going to face the Giants quite a bit in September. But then you also have a lot of Padres and the Padres are a really strong looking team now. Yeah. And I'm not even just looking at at the West. I'm looking at, you know, if you had teams absolutely stripped down kind of half fire sale like the Diamondbacks did uh, in another division, like let's say the Royals did that, uh, or the Tigers, or something. You know, the, the Giants are going to be going for this wild card against the third place team from the Central and the third place team from the East, and it's incumbent upon them to finish ahead of of the Rockies in the standings, and right now they're a half game behind them. But you know, it it it, it really is going to impact uh, the, those wild card races if you have some teams that have just gone into complete tank mode like uh, like the Diamondbacks did. And and we really didn't see a whole lot of that. The Diamondbacks are really the best example of a team that just tried to move off as much as they could. And and I really do believe that they shifted their strategy dramatically because of COVID. I, I really do believe that that is an ownership group that is not deep pocketed. They're not a big revenue team. Um, you know, they, they probably rely on a lot of their, their revenue from the gate, from concessions, etc., um, and I really think that my speculation is that probably ownership went to that management group and said, you know, all the interesting stuff that you guys did, getting the Martes and, and signing Bumgarner and, and, and sort of building this really interesting group, which I think we all thought the Diamondbacks were uh, kind of going to enter the season as, as a contending club, maybe not to beat the Dodgers, but to, to be the uh, playoff team or a wildcard team. And I think they kind of said, you know what? No, we, 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 we need you to cut payroll. We need you to cut um, – uh, expenses and and therefore you know a Robbie Ray gets moved for Travis Bergen who was the Giants Rule Five draftee last year. I mean it's obviously not much of a return there for a pretty good pitcher who's having a bad year. Uh, so you know I, I think it really is going to be to the Giants' advantage. Um, apart from what the Padres did because they still have games left against the Padres and the Padres got better in a lot of ways. But overall, I think it could have been disastrous if you have teams that had just shed a ton of players in other divisions that the Giants don't get to play, that maybe the Brewers get to play seven times. Um, so in that respect, I think the trade deadline actually went went off okay for the Giants. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now, let me put the GM hat on you. 
Are you more aggressive with uh, acquiring bullpen help for this team, this team that's currently two games under 500, but that doesn't quite tell the whole story of how they've turned their season around? Are you okay with trading some some of the younger players, maybe in the uh, the player pool right now, for bullpen help? Or are you okay with the giant strategy of, ah, let's just see where it goes? You know, I think that to keep this team afloat, I would not give it a sea do, I would give it a couple of floaties and, and tell them, <laughs> strap one of these on each arm. They have Scooby-Doo on them. They're awesome. And uh, good luck. Um, we're all counting on you to, to stay afloat. Um, yeah, I, I would not invest in this group, but I think that I would pay respect to, hey, if you guys feel you're good enough as is, then we're going to let you go as is. And uh, they got Anthony Banda, uh, a, you know, a lefty from from the Rays for not much. And he's, he's at the alternate site now. Um, so, you know, they... They made at least one little move, but no, I, I don't think that I would have given up anything in terms of prospect talent or young players or controllable players for, for a rental reliever. Yeah, I agree. It And here's where my brain has fractured into a million pieces is that in the past, and I'm talking two, three years ago, I, I would have said, you know what, prospects, you can't just keep all your prospects. Let's trade someone from from the middle of the pack, the, the 10th best prospect down to the 30th and, and see what you can get for a reliever with a couple years of control. I would have followed that trend. But the James Shields for Fernando Tatis Jr. trade has broken me because it's just like, oh, what if this is our Tatis? You know, like it's I I can't handle it. That was such a ah, don't worry about it. It's some teenager. You'll never see him. And yeah, he's like the best player in baseball. And I am terrified that before the rebuild starts in earnest or, or I, you know, we start to see the fruits of it, that something like that would happen. So hug those prospects tight. Yeah. I mean, the Giants have a guy, Luis Matos, that was kind of an afterthought when they signed him. And now he's a really, really interesting, um, you know, still a teenager, but he's somebody who's definitely on the watch lists. And and when they signed him immediately after, you know, they could have definitely moved him as, as a piece in a deal and not really thought a lot of it. Um, you know, he wasn't a massive, massive bonus guy. So uh, I'll tell you what, the other the other deal that I think shows you the value of prospects is the deal that the Giants made at the winter meetings, uh, taking on, uh, what, what was that, $12 million of, of Zach Cozart's dead money, the highest paid Giant in 2020, Zach Cozart, um, <laughs> to get Will Wilson, who, I mean, we're not talking about a top five pick. We're talking about a back-end fringy, you know, a guy who does a lot of things nice but isn't super, you know, massively tooled up, um, had a disappointing year in the Cal League, uh, I think maybe had, had fallen a little bit, and is, is kind of the back-end of the Giants' top 10 prospects, and they paid $12 million for that player. So, I mean, that tells you how valuable prospects are um, in the game right now. And, and I do think there's a lot of risk aversion among front offices as well, and a lot of group think along those lines. It's been fascinating to me, before the trade deadline and then with Anthony Banda at the trade deadline, the giant strategy of a team designating a player for assignment, a potentially useful player, and the Giants swoop it in going, hey, you want money? Because these teams, and we're talking the Rays and the Mets specifically, and, and the White Sox, you know, you have uh, Luis Alexander Basabe, Jordan Humphreys from the Mets, a, a pitcher who slotted, you know, fairly high up in the Giants' top 30. Uh, you have, uh, who am I missing? You have the Will Wilson. You have, oh, Daniel Robertson, you know, interesting, and Anthony Banda. All these players were, you know, except for Will Wilson, 
they were designated for assignment because of the roster crunch, because of the weirdness of 2020 and the player pools and, and all the bureaucracy that goes along with that. These teams said, okay, we got to do something with that. And other teams didn't want to give up prospects for them. And most teams without gate revenue don't want to give up money. But the Giants seem comfortable giving up money for these sort of shots at maybe another, if not Yastrzemski, Dickerson or something. Yeah, I, I love the strategy because, you know, I mean, the Giants should should have money. I mean, even though uh, we'd heard Larry Bear talk for years about the rainy day fund, you know, oh, we didn't spend it on Giancarlo Stanton. We didn't spend it on Bryce Harper. Well, how about a rainy year? How about a, a pandemic year with no fans? Um, I mean, the Giants should be set up better than a lot of other franchises that are really going to be impacted um, uh, by by the revenue loss. And, and I mean, this is, it's like life, right? I mean, Warren Buffett doesn't have to sell stock to, to pay his car payment. You know, he's, he's, he's able to hold on through the rough times and, and, <laughs> and the Giants should be in that position too. So, um, and, and yeah, I, I, I definitely think you, you know, there's a clear philosophy that, hey, who, 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 who's the 40th guy in the Rays roster? Who, who's going to get squeezed out? Uh, who are the Rays going to have to move to, to add this guy? Oh, oh, that guy's better than anything we have. Well, let's go ahead and grab him. I mean, clearly the Rays have a lot of talent in their system. Uh, and, and they're, they're at a point where they're graduating quite a bit of that talent and, and they have constant 40 man issues. So the giants are going to be watching that dumpster like a hawk every, every time. Let's pause to tell you about Manscaped. Manscaped has you covered to keep the hair looking nice and trimmed and feeling fully supported. Manscaped offers precision engineer tools for your family jewels. The Premium Lawnmower 3.0 is waterproof. It includes an LED light, and it's made with advanced skin-safe technology, which reduces nicks and cuts on your delicates. You can get this trimmer inside their Perfect Package 3.0, which also includes the Manscaped Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Ball Toning Spray. Both super practical, and they smell great, too. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code THEATHLETIC20. From the moose to the caboose, always use the right tools for the job. To be very, very clear, we're not it's saying that the Giants are just going around and aha, they're light years ahead of the competition because they did something similar last year with Joe McCarthy where they saw that the Rays were going to have a 40-man roster crunch after the season. They said, you just, you going to eat that? You know, they kind of that, that philosophy <laughs> of, can we just, you know, just, just throw that on our plate? And so they tried out Joe McCarthy. It w- resulted in 10 hitless at-bats and very iffy swings and you know I'm not I'm no scout but when I watched him swing the bat I was like I don't know if that's gonna work um so it's not like this foolproof strategy, but the more raffle tickets you get, the likelier you are to, to at least win some sort of door prize. And you don't need to point at Mike Yastrzemski and, and or you know and say like, "Where's our Max Muncy?" And, and that sort of thing. You just want value, a little bit of value. And Daniel Robertson, as a 26 year old who can play 
kind of everywhere uh, and at least has some idea with what to do with the bat, at least some bat control, strike zone control. I don't know. Get as many of those guys as possible. Yeah. I mean, you know, who would you rather have on your team? Uh, Robertson with the kind of versatility and athleticism he has or a Pablo Sandoval. And, and and that could be the choice eventually if they do have to add a pitcher late, later from the DL or add a smiley back, um, you know, they, they could end up subtracting Pablo. Uh, but, you know, maybe not at this stage of the season. But yeah, they, they've. I think their their roster is is becoming more and more flexible. Uh, there, there's a definite move in that direction. Yeah, he's an interesting player, and, and they got him for practically nothing. So I think they're getting stronger as an organization uh, from from you know month to month, uh, pretty much ever since uh, this this group has taken over. And the other thing that I think is interesting is we've already seen just what kind of impact their coaching staff has made, especially on the offense. And so you start to input some of these interesting players and you know they have talent or they have bat to ball skills and you can sharpen up those skills or get them to unlock even more of their potential that maybe was stalled and and who knows you know if if uh, a McCarthy didn't work out but a lot of these other guys have and um boy i mean it's been just amazing to watch this offense at work. That is a good segue into our next topic, which is runs and offense. And my goodness, because, all right, so I'm a fan of the stat OPS plus uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's on baseball reference and it's just right there for me. And I don't like to work too hard to consume my statistical information. And the other, it's it's simple. It's a hundred. The number 100 is the league average. Anything above that is better than league average. Below it is worse than league average. It accounts for park, what the league's doing that year. It's just a very simple, you look at someone with a 133 OPS and you go, oh, okay, that guy is better than the league average by a good measure. The Giants lineup right now can feature at any time eight guys who are comfortably above the league average in OPS+. plus. You've got Brandon Belt. He's doing just bizarre things. He's, he's hitting 333. You have Donovan Solano doing his thing. Brandon Crawford is back, you know, from where he was just a couple weeks ago. Longoria, Dickerson's resurgence. I mean, you can go through, and the only spot where you might have a below-average hitter is catcher. And it's bizarre to me to look at this page and see that. And I know it's a small sample, but uh, this surprised the heck out of me. And the catcher is still a guy who who's at bats you don't want to miss, yeah. right? Yeah, as a team, they have a 113 OPS plus. That's higher than the Yankees at 112. You know, it's adjusted for park. And and obviously, it's uh, it's been a pretty lively NL West because the Padres are 124. They lead the majors. Uh, the Dodgers are fourth at 115. Oddly, the, the Mets are number two and then the White Sox. I, I didn't expect the Mets to have that kind of offense this year. But, you know, if you want to go just to runs per game, then the Padres are one at 5.69. The Dodgers are two at 5.59. Then you've got the Phillies, Braves, and and uh, Astros. And then the Giants are sitting right there at 5.29. Did you see this being the, you know, in the top 10 of the highest scoring offenses in, in the major leagues? I, I sure didn't. Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, <laughs> I I wrote about it, but the editor spiked the piece. You gotta believe me. You gotta. Be- no, I mean obviously it's fantastic to watch. Just watching a, a high octane offense, and I don't know if it's gonna last, but just watching it after so many years of four two losses, five four wins, you know what have you, uh, and those five four wins felt like an eight to two win. 
it, it's remarkable. And one of the things that is surprising me the most is that it's not just coming from like the big brain of Farhan. It's not just Yastrzemski and Dickerson and, and Wilmer Flores and all these players that the new front office have identified. It's a lot of the legacy giants too. It's Belt, it's Crawford, it's Longoria. It's guys they were, uh, for lack of a better word, saddled with. And they had to figure out how to make that lemonade out of those lemons and they apparently done it. And early in the year, it was it was kind of uh, chic to make fun of the Giants for having seventy three coaches. And now it's it seems like I don't know that it makes a lot of sense for every hitter to sit down with a coach before a game and have like a detailed analysis of how they might attack that specific pitcher. It's it's been something to watch. Yeah, I mean, you, you see things like two strike approach and two strike slugging and you know walk to strikeout ratio. I mean, there's improvement across the board, and I think that some of that has to be ascribed to messaging and coaching. Uh, and I what I really liked one of the points in your piece. Uh, that you referenced was you gave, you know, this group uh, of Farhan Zaidi, uh, uh, Scott Harris, this whole uh, front office, a lot of credit um, for not like listening to some of the fans who had their finger on the jettison button. And I think that it's easier to destroy than to create always. That seems to be one of those truisms of life. And it would have been very easy for them just to DFA people or move them for pennies on the dollar and just start fresh and, and you know, not invest any more at bats in Brandon Crawford or Brandon Belt and try to you know bring in new people. Uh, but they didn't do that. They, they, they really tried to recreate and, and repurpose um, the, the pieces that, that, as you say, they were saddled with. And uh, while still, you know, going out and, and being extra gregarious when trying to bring in new inputs. And, you know, to be able to sort of thread that needle and do both and do both very well and end up with the results that they have. And, you know, granted, there's still two games under 500. It's not like we're talking about uh, the Padres. We're talking about the Giants. But, you know, I, I, I think that they're, you got to be pleased with, with where they're at and, and what they've been able to um get out of, out of the group that they inherited along with the group that they've brought in. And to that end, you know, where the front office gets a lot of credit for that, I just want to go, okay, so the Giants have played 20 games in the season. You are a new manager and you are taking a lot of guff and it's the team is 8 and 12. You look at your lineup and you have Brandon Belt hitting 135. Uh, you have Brandon Crawford hitting 208 with a 471 OPS. You have Evan Longoria hitting 213 with a 569 OPS. You are the new manager. All the attention is on you. What do you do with those veterans? Me, I'm tempted to bench them. I'm tempted to, uh, you know, argue with the front office if, they telling me to, if, if they're telling me to keep playing them. I'm saying, no, these guys are going to cost me my job. They, they're washed up. They're all in their mid-30s. I got to see what else we have and move on. And Gabe Kapler didn't do that. And it's something that the fans would have understood. It's something I would have understood. It's something I might have done. I mean, I'm not in the clubhouse, but at some point, about 20 games in the season, I was very much over the Brandons and their capability and their ability to hit for this team going forward. They they kind of just stayed the course, and it's paying off so well. And I, if it kind of like the ship righted, I would have been like, wow, it didn't just right. Like now they're surging. Yeah, there's two two things that I would point to getting from A to B. A would be opening day when when Gabe Kapler pinch hit for Brandon Crawford in the late innings, 
and you think, okay, this is how it's going to be. These guys are not really entering with any capital from winning World Series rings. They are going to be platooned strictly. They are going to be, you know, match up to death. They're not going to really be given a whole lot of, of rope. That's just the way this is going to go. That's the way this season's going to go. Now you get about a month later or a month and a half later, whatever it is. I have no concept of time. Um, <laughs> and Brandon Belt is hot and, and Gabe Kapler starts him against Clayton Kershaw. Because Brandon Belt's hot, and uh, that would be the ultimate matchup where you do not play Brandon Belt. Uh, you you just you put him in Saran wrap and, and keep him you know next to the bubble gum in, in the in the dugout uh, until Kershaw's out of the game. But it was a nod to hey, you know what? This guy's hot. Uh, he deserves to be out there. He's showing us that he's locked in. And so to hell with with the fact that he's you know one for a billion against Clayton Kershaw. We're going to go ahead and start him. And uh, and he he did the same thing with Alex Dickerson. Started him against a. Uh, uh, a lefty, you know, a day after Dickerson had five extra base hits. Uh, so, you know, you might say, well, that's obvious. You, you stay with a hot player, but that's that's not sort of the paradigm that we were expecting and the one that, the, that was sort of being set uh, in that first series of the season. So I think we're seeing a big shift, not only in, in some of it may be Gabe Kapler and, and, and what the players are telling him and what this group is is sort of informing him and if he's changing as a manager maybe a little bit, but maybe it's some of it is also the players saying, you know what, if Kapler's telling them, if, if you're able to show us that you can play every day, then we're going to we're gonna recognize that and we're going to respond to that. And that's why Mike Yastrzemski isn't platooned. Uh, he's got better numbers against lefties anyway. And that's why, you know, I think there's been a show of faith in these veteran players. And, and, and frankly, they've, they've deserved it. We will be back after this. I think you're uh, besmirching Brandon Belt's reputation against Clayton Kershaw. Uh, he used to hit 1,000 against him. <laughs> he got a, uh, was it a bunt hit in his first at bat? Was that it? It was a squib. It was the squibbiest of the squibs. <laughs> and that was his first major league hit. No, I was looking this up. This is kind of a tangent. But uh, of all the pitchers that Brandon Belt has faced, he has faced Clayton Kershaw more than the second place pitcher by a bunch. He's had 67 plate appearances against Kershaw and the next guy, Zach Greinke, 42. So like there's this huge gap. He's faced Kershaw more than any single pitcher by a factor of like, I'm not going to do math on the podcast, but a ton. And it hasn't worked out. But I'll tell you what, in that in that game against Kershaw, he had a really good at bat and hit into a hard luck out that sort of just shows you how hot and locked in he was. And I never thought I would see Brandon Belt that locked in again. Yeah, he's got Alded one to center field, as I recall. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it is kind of funny when I was going through and doing those those nemesis stories. It, you, you don't really realize it, but the good players who stay around a long time, they, they the the pitchers they end up facing are the best pitchers. They're the Hall yes. of Fame pitchers because they all they all stay in the big leagues because they're good enough. Uh, but then you think, boy, you know, if, if you could just take out Clayton Kershaw, Clayton Kershaw had decided that he really wanted to be a veterinarian and he never became a, a, a major league pitcher, then, you know, Brandon Belt's numbers might be even better. But somebody else would replace him and, and be awesome as well. Yeah, no, that's, I always just remark on when I go to like Willie Mays and, and throughout his career, he, he had 253 plate appearances against Warren Spahn and absolutely wore Spawn out. And he had 243 plate appearances against Don Drysdale, absolutely wore him out. 
the next guy on the list, Robin Roberts, absolutely wore him out. And it makes sense because he's Willie Mays. But just the idea that these guys are around for basically uh, basically like a, a half or a third of a, uh, of a full regular season, like a full season of at-bats, a third of a full season was against Warren Spahn or Don Drysdale. And they just stuck around for decades. Yeah, yeah. And I, I should mention um, with the passing of Tom Seaver, and we're seeing all the outpouring of, of emotion and, and what Tom Seaver meant to so many people, especially New York Mets fans. One of my favorite stories I got to do in that Nemesis series was, was Tom Seaver's nemesis was Rick Monday. Rick Monday just crushed Tom Seaver. Um, mm. and, and he also hit Steve Carlton pretty well, too. And, and you realize how good a player Rick Monday was beyond uh, rescuing the American flag that day at Dodger Stadium, <laughs> um, which is you know what we all remember about Rick Monday. But yeah, that was that was a fun one to do. And that story is up on the site. Yeah, no, Rick Monday's... I, I always love those players who you, you sort of pick around and you go, wow, that guy was had to be something back then. Uh, Rick Monday was one of them. Who's another? Who were some other players where you just like you're, you're floating around on baseball reference and you see like uh, Kurt Simmons, like you just look at the Kurt Simmons baseball reference page and it's like, this guy was around for 20 years and he had almost 200 wins and no one's talking about Kurt Simmons these days, but he was a pretty dang good player. I'm fascinated with those kind of players. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you what, Felipe Alou was one of those players. When you yes. look up uh, who had the most hits in 1968, the year of the pitcher, Felipe Alou, he, he crushed <laughs> Bob Gibson in 1968. You think that's the, the worst matchup for a hitter in Major League history, and Felipe Alou just destroyed him. I mean, Felipe Alou was a great player. I think it's something you need a little bit of age and perspective to have, because I know that when I'm 63 years old, I'm going to be like, you know who's good? Brian Giles. And the people <laughs> who were like 20 years old are going to be like, what the hell are you talking about, old man? It's like, ah, no, 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 Brian Giles. And then I'll start talking about Brian Giles and no one will care. But no, Brian Giles is really good. And th- there's decades of these players to discover from, yeah, I didn't care about Kurt Simmons or Felipe Lou when I was 20. Well, I cared about Felipe Lou quite a bit. But, uh, you know, j- these players, you discover them. And I, I think Hunter Pence if he didn't have that gregarious personality that's going to go down in lore, he would have been one of those players, like a very good player for a very long time who isn't quite Hall of Fame worthy. Those players are, are sort of the heartbeat of baseball in a lot of ways. Yeah, Brian Giles. So the first thing I think with Brian Giles is the the feature story that Bob Nightingale wrote about him. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? He is an odd duck, and I'm not talking about Nightingale. I'm talking about Brian Giles, because it, it's this one where like uh, he had the game of let's touch Omar Vizquel before he ran off the field. It, it was it was the one where he's playing with his brother Marcus, and oh gosh, I wonder. I'm I'm looking to see if it's online. The headline was "Welcome to the Quirky Zany World of the Brothers Giles," and basically, <laughs> the lead to the story was was about him trying to lure teammates into the shower um, because he did weird things in there. And, and I think I'll just leave it right there. There's really yeah. <laughs> Let your imagination run wild. And that was the lead to a professional baseball story written by a professional baseball writer. Yeah, no, I do remember that, and I forgot about it until just now. Uh, Bobby Abreu, he's a really great player who's not that strange, so let's... let's hey, not strange at all. You know, I, I, almost, I almost gave him a Hall of Fame vote, Bobby Abreu. I had to think really hard about that one. I would have really, really, really considered it. You know, he's from that era where it was high-octane offense, but I don't know. He was just one of the 
better hitters I had ever seen. So again, these are the guys that we're going to be talking about in 20 years, and and the the youth of then, assuming there is a society, uh, will just go what a Bobby Abreu. Oh yeah, man, they'll maybe have the same epiphanies that we're having right now. Yeah, yeah, and and um, and maybe we'll be talking about some uh, some Giants players that we're going to see. In the maybe we'll talk about Mike Yastrzemski that way. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about Donovan Solano hitting three thirty three when he's like forty years old because. I don't know. Just real quick, lightning round. Do you believe in this offense? Do you think it's going to continue to be not just like, okay, but a, a strength relative to their peers? I think that we've got enough of a sample to believe that they can sustain this, especially with the fact that their schedule is pretty manageable. I mean, they've got four games against the Diamondbacks here coming up. And Madison Bumgarner, we haven't touched on this, is pitching on Saturday. Uh, So that'll be interesting. They've still got four games with the Mariners, two home, two road. Four more against the Rockies at home. And we know the Rockies traditionally don't play very well in San Francisco. Three at Oakland, and we know the A's are good. And then obviously they've still got seven against the Padres. But you know, aside from those games against the Padres, nothing else really scares you on that schedule. Even the A's, the Giants played well against them before, you know, blowing up two two of the three games in which they had a 99% probability to win. So I don't know. I, I see this offense continuing to perform through the, the final, what do we got, about three weeks of the season left. And if you're a Giants fan, I hate to say this, but you're rooting for the Dodgers. You're rooting for the Padres when they're not playing the Giants. You, you're rooting for anybody playing the Rockies. And because seeding doesn't really matter. I mean, it's 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 uh, it doesn't matter if the Giants enter as the eight seed or the seven seed or, or whatever. Um, you know, they just you just need to get in. Yeah. So I, I think this offense can perform the rest of the way. All right. This has been episode 99 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Join us next Tuesday for episode 100. And it's very on brand for our 100th episode to be adjusted uh, to a different day because of things out of our control. That is very, very on brand. But I, I don't know. What are we going to do for episode 100? Absolutely nothing. That's what I'm planning. Uh, yes, it will pass without remarks. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. We will uh, see you on Tuesday. Thanks to Tanika Smothers for producing the heck out of us. And we will be back. Thanks a lot.